On the 14th of August 1988, Enzo Ferrari passed away at the age of 90. Formula One had lost its most iconic team principal, but his legendary team would live on. I'm Tom Clarkson and welcome to Beyond the Grid for the second of our special episodes chronicling what it's like to drive for Scuderia Ferrari, that most emotive of teams. Last week, Mario Andretti, Jody Schechter, Tony Brooks and Gerhard Berger talked us through what it was like to race for the prancing horse under Enzo's watchful eye. This week, we're looking at the modern era, the second phase of Ferrari, if you like. What it was like to drive for Ferrari immediately after Enzo had died and what it's like today. We'll be sharing brand new insight from three world champions, Alain Prost, Nigel Mansell and Sebastian Vettel, as well as the thoughts of beloved Ferrari race winner Rubens Barrichello and current idol Charles Leclerc. Sadly, we won't be hearing from the man who defined Ferrari in the modern era, Michael Schumacher, but be under no illusions as to what racing for the Maranello team meant to him. Schumi arrived in 1996 to a team with just two race wins in the previous five years. A team that had not won the driver's title since 1979, He'd emphatically change all that, of course, winning three races in his maiden season in red, including an emotional triumph on Ferrari's home soil at Monza. Michael Schumacher wins in Italy. The Tifosi are on the track. It's quite incredible the way they find their way onto the circuit. Stay in front of those guys in such a crowd is just unbelievable. I never have seen so many emotions, so many people enjoying themselves, it's, it's fantastic. When Schumacher burst onto the F1 scene in 1991, the big dogs of the day were Ayrton Senna, Alain Prost and Nigel Mansell. Mansell was racing for Williams at the time, but he'd spent the previous two seasons at Ferrari, where, nicknamed Il Leone, the Lion, his full-blooded approach to racing had made him a hero of the Tifosi, and that love was mutual. Nigel, if you could sum up Ferrari in one word, what would that word be? Utopia. Completion of one's experience of life in the most amazing team in Formula One, bar none. It's the most charismatic, most emotional team I think anyone could have any experience of driving for ever in their lives. If you're two years of age or 92 years of age in Italy, you know who the Ferrari drivers are. And it's the only time I've ever won races with Ferrari where I've had the bells of every church ringing in Italy. It's a different dynamic um, to any other racing team in Formula One. Although it didn't end in a championship, do you look back on your two years at Ferrari as one of the highlights of your career? Yeah, with, without any question, uh, to have the experience of going there and to see what was accomplished and just the, the whole atmosphere and the way they do things, it's just so different. I mean, it was like, it was like Christmas on sticks, really, when I first joined there. They just look after you incredibly well. You walk past a racing Ducati motorbike in the workshop in the first or second week I was there, and I just said, well, that's nice. And two weeks later, racing Ducati came to my home free of charge, you know, and there's a nice race in Ducati. And then about 
a few weeks went past and I was testing and they said, would I test a new tester Ross around the racetrack? And I said, oh, I think need to put a bit more understeer in the car. This is a bit pointy for being on the road. And I said, but, you know, wonderful car. That's all I said. Two weeks later, I got a brand new tester Rossa back, back in my home all for free, you know. But I tested that myth because it was about two months later, we were testing down in Estoril. And um, we borrowed one of the Falcon 900s. Um, Yes, we're, we're late, so, uh, and I flew the Falcon 900 down to Estoril, uh, to Lisbon, and um, the, the captain who let me fly it, I said, please tell your boss that this plane is fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And there's a limit to the generosity because that was worth about $32 million. I'm still waiting for it to come. <laughs> <laughs> Nigel, that's fantastic. But, but they're great. You, you've got your own masseurs to wake you up in the morning, put you to bed, you've got your own chef with Luigi, you got your doctors. Yeah, it's, it's the greatest polemic team in Formula One. Uh, there's so many things that goes on that you don't want to talk about. But overall, the experience for me, it was fantastic. Can we go back to the beginning? And can you tell me how the opportunity came about? Well, we, we, we talked, I talked with Enzo back in the early 80s. That obviously didn't come to fruition, but we obviously knew about one another. The pivotal thing came really in 86, 87, when we were going for obviously two world championships. We had the accident in 87, and then I was outright number one for Williams in 88. And I really honestly thought in 88, I got an incredible chance of winning the championship. And then the thing that torpedoed that for me was, and I understand the reasons for it, but to sell the Honda engine for revered, I think it was about 24 million pounds at the time to McLaren for Ayrton and Alan to use to win the championship and dominate like there's no tomorrow. Then to have just a year in the wilderness in Formula One where we were no fault of John Judd. He did a great job in a very short period of time. I finished only two races in 1988. And they came and spoke to me at the end of 87, beginning of 88. And I was so disillusioned with what happened with what Williams did. I really thought the opportunity was too good to not take up and obviously we came to an agreement with Ferrari really I never looked back you were famously the last driver that Enzo signed himself what are yeah. your memories of him it, it was just amazing I mean I was privileged to go out to lunch with him and dinner with him and um, I mean I'll never forget the first time um, there's about 30 of us around a very big table and you can imagine the noise in the cantina of an Italian restaurant and it was just mega noisy and then I was sitting right opposite, obviously, Enzo, because he wanted to talk to me. And he would just lift a finger off the table. And as soon as he moved, you could hear a pin drop. Everyone stopped. I was transfixed how everybody knew when to stop because it was like instantaneous. It's like, how'd you do that? That's like a little bit of magic. How'd you do that? And then everybody waited to see if he was going to say something. And he just wanted to pick the salt up and have a bit of salt. And then when he finished his motion and they realized he didn't want to say anything, then the ruckus just started again. <laughs> so it was the incredible respect and power of the man that came across amazingly. Did you sense a change in the team after he died? I know he died in 88, but was it a different Ferrari that you arrived at in 89 as a result? The, the problem is with Ferrari, and it's been for evermore, it's a multiple amico. It's just grande polemics all the time, politics. And I'm not a politician. To have so many people come and go in a very short period of time, 
they do things in a very different way. You know, you had like three designers or a whole number of engineers and we only need one, but their way of doing it, they think the strongest one will survive and the best one will survive, but not necessarily. The best politician will survive, but not necessarily the best engineer. And so they have a different way of doing things, um, which you sort of have to get your head around. So from a driving point of view, what type of personality gets on best at Ferrari and has done over the years as well? An honest one, one that gets in the car and just rings the car's neck like Patrick had said I used to do. And that's why they nicknamed me Elioni, the Lionheart. Uh, I used to, whatever the car was, I'd get the best possible I could out of any car. And, um, you know, I didn't do any of the politics. Sometimes I should have done in hindsight. Um, but, you know, I was just there to race and do the best job I could with my engineer. But, yeah, I mean, they embrace their drivers. They support them until they fall out with them. Mansell joined Ferrari in 1989, the season that they introduced their revolutionary semi-automatic paddle shift gearbox. But while that technology would go on to great success, ahead of its debut season, its unreliability caused Ferrari and Mansell plenty of headaches. It was obscene. It was totally, totally obscene. Extraordinary because on the warm-up to the race, we used to have warm-ups before the race then. I went out in the pits, I did five corners and broke down. I didn't even do a lap in the warm-up. And I sat on the first corner coming onto the main back straight and all the fans were throwing bricks and all sorts of things because they're very excitable. And I was thinking, oh, this is a really great day. They found that the, um, the gearbox solenoids had fused and so they changed all that. And Anyway, Gerd and I joked, how many laps do you think we'll do in the race? And he said between 7 and 15. And um, I have to say, absolutely truthfully, I booked a flight home at 4.30 that afternoon, expecting to be at the race within 15 laps. Anyway, we get going in the race, and I'm, I'm lying fourth or fifth, and after a few laps I come around, there was Gerhard on the right-hand side with smoke coming out the radiators and steam and everything, and so he'd blown up already. And then I came around next lap and I think I was fourth. You know, car was going quite well. And then I got up to third and I was thinking, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, don't break down now. I mean, you know, just keep going for a few more laps. Then I got up to second and it's the only race in my life I got really pissed off because I was going, I'm up to second. The car's going really well, you know. Come on, keep going, keep going. And then I got in the lead and I was getting angry. I was getting angry. I said, I mean, I'm winning the goddamn race now. So I said, every lap I was expecting it to break down. And then I was coming down the straight and I literally almost, I'll say it, almost shut my pants because the steering wheel dropped in my lap and a bolt had come out the steering wheel and I could hardly steer the car. So, I mean, it really quite shook me up at 200 miles an hour. So then I got back into the pit straight away and we changed five wheels and four tires. And a chief mechanic's got a hole in his hand where he stuck the wheel on. Anyway, as magical as it was, we won the race. And I haven't got a clue to this day how we won the race because I think it took another six or seven races after that for any of the cars to finish a race. So it's a little bit of a, a freak of nature and, and just an amazing thing, which obviously I dedicated the race to Enzo Ferrari. 
probably the most unique race I've ever won in my life. Thinking every lap I'm going to break down and shouting at the car to keep going. There would be other great performances for Mansell in Ferrari Red. Drives that cemented his legacy at the team and in the hearts and minds of the fans. Now, another great win of yours was Hungary 89 when you overtook Ayrton. Could you talk us through that race? You know, it was fantastic. I went from 12th, I think, to 7th on the first lap and then fought all the way forward and, and then the overtaking manoeuvre on Ayrton was legendary. It was one of the most fantastic wins that I could give Ferrari, uh, you know, from 12th on the grid at, at, at Hungary, which, um, but it was, it was a complete team effort. Uh, Mauricio and I done the mechanics, the engineers, myself, and even John, and it was a great, great race, fabulous race. Can you talk us through that overtaking manoeuvre? So you're, you're behind Ayrton, Stefan Johansson's ahead. What are you thinking at that point? Well, well, first of all, this is what's lost in Formula One today because of the regulation. Back markers were back markers then. And I knew that he was going to get slowed up somewhere. And it was completely spur of the moment to box him in. And I just had enough momentum to jump because we didn't have the drag reduction wing. So you had to time it perfectly, you know, to slipstream and get alongside and all the rest of it. And it just worked beautifully. And I was laughing in the car going, saying, well, you screwed that one up, didn't you? <laughs> gotcha there, I gotcha. <laughs> but Nigel, what happened? Did Ayrton hesitate? Is that what opened the door for you? No, I went for an impossible gap. When you're driving and you're Ayrton and you're going flat out, you don't think anyone can attack you. That was his first mistake. His second mistake was, I think he just, he, he probably had half a glance in his mirror. And then by the time he glanced back to Stefan Johansson, I think he probably closed faster than he thought. And it was too late then anyway. It was just like the overtaking maneuver with Nelson Piquet in 1987 at Silverstone. So you win the race by 25 seconds and Senna's second. When you're on the podium... In that kind of situation, did Ayrton say anything to you? Did you say anything to him? When you've beaten Ayrton fair and square, he was a very, um, very professional, very genuine guy. And uh, all these years later, I will say, when I won the World Championship, I couldn't have been happier to have been on the podium with Ayrton. I came second to him in Hungary to win. And he put his arm around me and hugged me. And he said, you know why we're such bastards now? Different world champions go to different lengths to win world championships. And multi-world champions are very fortunate to have the opportunity. But I'm just delighted to be part of the club. But Ayrton was, was, was fantastic. He's, he's a consummate professional when he wants to be. He's an incredible politician when he wants to be. And he was one of the most ruthless, incredibly charging racers of Formula One's history. Can I ask you about one more Ferrari moment? And it's involving sure. your friend and mine, Gerhard. We're talking Mexico 1990. Yeah. Paratal there, Jim Rowe. Can I tell you before that one? When I came back in 94, when I won the last race in Australia, Gerhard and I was up on the podium and we were fighting in the race. And he turned to me on the podium. You are a bastard, he said. I really wanted to win this race. And I looked at him and I just said, what do you think I was here for? <laughs> Now, the, the, the story in Mexico, which is astonishing, was I'm going down the straight, and it's a long straight, as you know, and I know he was behind. And I looked in my mirror just before I turned in, and I could see this car completely locked up, smoke coming off the wheels, and if I had turned in, he would have T-boned me. 
And I had to turn away from the corner and he got past me and in front of me. And I went, goodness gracious me, you're not going to overtake me like that. That's really bad behavior. So we went about the business to try and catch him. Uh, we were having a tussle, as you know. Yeah, going into the Paratello, we were going one way, another way, and all the rest of it. And I just thought, you know when you see a little bit of red mist? And I thought, you're not going to beat me doing like you've just done. So I just kept it flat around the outside of the Paratello, and it was pretty awesome. It was amazing, and I think it shocked him. It shocked me, actually. <laughs> and, and, and Vanzo going round the outside. Incredible. Up into second place. He's regained that second place. And now he's barely rocketing away from Berger on the last lap in Mexico. Absolutely brilliant manoeuvre by Mansell. Fantastically brave. Was the car completely on edge? We got close in the middle of the corner, and I was really worried he was going to touch me, in which case it would have sent me off. But, I mean, you're committed at that speed. I mean, those are balls out corners. You, you, there's no messing with that. It's a one-off. You don't do that very often, ever. But the most amazing thing, I've got to tell you, I did it, and I was so pleased with it. I knew I got a good, good exit, so I knew he couldn't catch me down the next straight. And I was going, right. You know, and I was talking, I said, up yours. <laughs> but Gerhard is a fantastic competitor. And to be able to do that to him, because he is an astonishing driver and he's had a great career himself. But the thing that's amazing after that manoeuvre, because obviously Alan was away in the lead, he was gone. On the slow down lap, everybody was clapping and cheering and everything else. And then when I came around the Peralta to come into the pits, everyone was standing and clapping and cheering and giving this and everything else. I honestly thought he'd broken down on the last lap and I'd won the race. And when I came in the pits, people were coming off the pit wall and out of the garages to applause me. And I've never had that before. And I thought, oh, shit, I've won the race, I've won the race. And I'd forgotten I'd just overtaken him on the outside of the corner. And what people were applauding was a manoeuvre. And I didn't realise that until I got out of the car. When I was looking at that and I was looking at when you look at Silverstone 87, I know you went down the inside of PK at Silverstone at Stowe, but were there, are there parallels between those two manoeuvres in terms of the impetuousness of you behind the wheel? You, it's, it's instantaneous. It's spontaneous, instantaneous, and total commitment. And even going into Stowe with uh, Nelson, we touched. We touched at the front end at 200 miles an hour. And, you know, it's open-wheel racing. I mean, either one of us could fly. And, and so, yeah, there, there's total commitment. It's just like Ed and I going down the straight at um, Barcelona that one time, ever so closer, ever so closer, ever so closer, until, you know, are you going to bottle out or not? Because I'm not going to bottle out. So um, it, it's just total commitment by great drivers putting on an incredible display of, of being talented exponents of driving a race car. The last moment, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I wanted to ask you about your pole lap at Silverstone in 1990. I remember James Hunt saying he thought it was your greatest pole. It was a stunning pole. How, how do you reflect on, on that one lap? Well, there's a great story to that as well, because um, I, I got there and um, obviously the British Grand Prix is, for me, the most important Grand Prix of all year uh, for the fans. And you've got to bear in mind that we had qualifying tyres. Stowe was flat. It was sixth or seventh gear, flat. Club was flat. Uh, Abbey was flat. The 
commitment from one lap going as quick as you can then to qualifying tires could be a difference of two to three seconds a lap. So, and you didn't have many qualifying tires. So to explore how much you could push it and how long the tires would last for, because they might be fantastic in the last two corners, they'll be falling apart. So you had to feel everything. The driver had to feel the grip, had to feel the car, and then you had to overcommit more than the talent you have to think you can do it. Because with qualifying tyres, every driver should tell you the same. When they've gone through certain corners with qualifying tyres, oh, damn it, I could have gone through a lot quicker than that, but it's too late, you don't get another chance. So being the home Grand Prix, I just overcommitted and I got away with it and I hung on to the car. It's all about brute force around Silverstone. The G-force going between Beckett's, the switchback was over 9.5 G because it boom, boom. And your eyes go cross-eyed for a while because qualifying tires will give you more grip than the cars have got now, but it's only for one lap. It was just sensational. It was just absolutely sensational. And um, yeah, I pulled it off. So what can I say except it was great. Was it your best pole? I don't know whether it was my best pole. Uh, for me, probably the best pole I've ever done in my life was in 1992 when I got pole at Silverstone then because I, I just blew away the opposition with that pole. And even, even uh, Patrick said, you can't go any quicker, so don't bother going out. Uh, so I went out and went quicker. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the, Ferrari, the Ferrari lap was a very, very special lap, very special lap. I'm just so privileged after all these years to say I've been a Ferrari driver. I've won for Ferrari. I've raced for Ferrari. I survived Ferrari. <laughs> and I still love them. And I think they still love me. It's wonderful to have that in your portfolio. We'll dive back into our celebration of all things Ferrari after this short message. If you listened to last week's episode, you will have heard Gerhard Berger express his regret at not learning Italian while racing for Ferrari. Well, don't be like Gerhard. If mastering a language has long been on your to-do list, help is on hand. Babbel is designed to get you speaking a new language within weeks with daily 10 to 15 minute lessons. There are 14 different languages to choose from, including French, Spanish and Italian. It's available as an app or online, so no matter where or when you log on to a lesson, your progress will be synced across all your devices and can be completed at your own pace at a time that suits you. Babbel is created by 100 language experts, so you're not reliant on translation machines and the speech recognition technology really helps you focus on your accent and pronunciation before test driving your skills in the real world. Right now, Babbel is offering our listeners six months free with a purchase of a six-month subscription with the promo code GRID. Go to babbel.co.uk forward slash play and use the promo code GRID on your six-month subscription. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot co dot UK slash play, promo code GRID. Right, let's get back to those Ferrari legends. Mansell's teammate in his second year at Ferrari was none other than Alain Prost then a three-time world champion. As the Frenchman established himself in the team, Mansell's relationship with the Scuderia soured as internal politics took hold. 
At Silverstone, Mansell was shocked to discover his car had been swapped with Prost's. He would still take pole and lead the race, but when his car's gearbox failed, he was furious. He threw his gloves into the crowd and announced his impending retirement from the sport. Prost, meanwhile, went on to win the race. When you win for Ferrari, when you lose for Ferrari, it's absolutely incomparable to another country, another team. You never feel that uh, anywhere else. It was perhaps inevitable that Ferrari would throw their weight behind Prost, the reigning champion, a fluent Italian speaker, and a driver that had long been a thorn in their side. But he was now wearing Ferrari red. In fact, according to the man himself, Ferrari had been after his services since his earliest days in Formula One. The first contact I had with Ferrari, that was in uh, 1980, when I started, after the first race, first or second race. I was at home in my small city in, uh, in Saint-Chamond, and uh, I had a call <laughs> uh, from Ferrari, not himself, from um, Piccinini. I thought it was my friend that did a, a joke, and I, <laughs> I closed the, the phone, you know, and he called back uh, maybe 10 minutes after I did the same. And the third time, then I started to talk to them. That's the first, the first contact. From, from 1980, almost all the time, almost two, three, four times per year, I had a contact with Ferrari. I almost went there in uh, 1980 first, and then uh, 82, I think, uh, 81, I don't remember. But anyway, we had, we had some contact. But when I came there in uh, 1990, first I stopped with McLaren, during the French Grand Prix in 89, without having any contact with any other team. My first decision was to stop with McLaren. I did not want to continue the same, uh, same thing with uh, McLaren, Honda and Ayrton. And then I had the first contact with them, maybe one week, uh, or a few days later. And then we started uh, to have the process. What impression did Maranello make on you the first time you went there? Uh, the, the, the first time is the... You, you feel the, the history of racing. That means uh, Maranello, the place, you have the house of, uh, you know, the commodator. Um, the, the whole thing is completely, uh, completely different. It does not impress you in terms of uh, factory, but uh, you have a, a huge amount of history behind you. But you can feel a sort of responsibility immediately. When I arrive at the airport the first time, you could not believe how it was, you know. I mean, everybody there, I mean, they, they stopped working, you know, they just, uh, you are like God, you know. And from the first day, you say, oh, that's going to be intense. But it gives you some strength, it gives you some power, you know. I remember the first test in Paul Ricard, where I, uh, we were testing until the night, and we were beating and beating the record and the car. I liked the car very much. I was, uh, you know, you could see the smile and the people, uh, you know, mechanics, engineers, they applaud you every time you come back to the garage. Uh, it's unbelievable. But you, you understand later on that sometimes it may be a little bit too much because there is no objectivity. You know, it goes over the top immediately. But it gives you some, uh, you, you have to leave that once, you know, you have to leave it. You know. Did you ever meet Enzo? I know you, you joined the team after he died, but did you meet him prior to that? I met him once, uh, much before I, I signed the contract, and I spoke to him uh, maybe two or three times on the phone. 
He always said uh, about me that uh, I would be a perfect Ferrari driver, but I may have a too strong character. <laughs> or, or, or a bad character or whatever he, he was saying, you know. But then I signed when he was not there. Ross joined Ferrari from great rivals McLaren, with whom he'd won three world titles. However, that final crown had come amid a bitter battle with teammate Ayrton Senna, which had hastened Prost's exit from the team, and from 1990, they'd fight in opposing teams. The first year was absolutely exceptional. Uh, from the beginning until the Portuguese Grand Prix, and then the, the end at, uh, in Japan. But uh, we, I mean, they did some mistakes in terms of management because I should have won the, the championship this year, but it was all perfect. You won five races in 1990, including that hat-trick of Mexico, France, yep. Silverstone. Yep. What's it like to ride the winning wave with Ferrari? Is uh, I mean, I remember, for example, Mexico, when I, that was my best race for sure, you know, when I started 13 on the grid. I did not qualify with qualifying tires, I qualified with rest tires, that is why I was 13. But I did not change the setup of my car, I improved the setup of my car for the rest. And when I stopped qualifying, uh, I was 13, I went in the garage with all the engineers, they were really, really almost upset, you know, and they were really down. I took the, um, the paper, you know, the way you have all the, the times, and I put on the paper, tomorrow I win the race easy, and I sign, you know. Like, it was not a joke. And you can ask Luigi Mazzola, he was my, uh, my uh, engineer, and the day after, um, I did uh, the best time on the warm-up by more than one second ahead of everybody. I was sure without any accident I could win this fucking race. Yeah. On lap 61 in this 69 lap race, Alain Prost, who won in Brazil, has passed Ayrton Senna, Alain Prost, the world champion, winning in Mexico. Alain Prost wins for Ferrari. Yes, tremendous. You realize that uh, you are in Mexico, very far from your home, very far from uh, Ferrari home. And that was unbelievable, you know, the, when I won all the, the flags and things like this. So you, you realize when you are in these countries that what Ferrari can represent in, uh, in the world, you know, in the world of motor racing, you know. But my win in, in Mexico, my win in France is obviously, that was the 100 victory of, uh, of Ferrari. And uh, then Silverstone. I was very close to think that that should be my year with Ferrari, you know, this, in this period. Just as had been the case in 1989, the battle for the 1990 driver's crown came down to Suzuka. Prost versus Senna. And as before, there were fireworks. We are waiting for the start of this 53-lap race. On the left is Ayrton Senna, on the right is Alain Prost, behind Senna is Mansell, behind Prost is Berger, the grid is clear, the lights go! And Senna sprints away, but Alain Prost takes the lead! It's happened! Alain Prost has taken the advantage, Senna is trying to go through on the inside, and it's happened immediately! This is amazing! Senna goes off at the first corner, but what has happened to Prost? Amazing, but I fear 
unbeatable. Yes, and that makes Hazard a world champion this year. You had two sorts of disappointment, even three. The first one, when that happened, because this race was for me, it was obvious, you know, was really, really for me. So it's disappointing for the championship and for the race. And then you, you realize that you, you still have some people thinking that uh, maybe my, that was not my mistake, but I had a, a part of res responsibility. But when we, we saw after the rest that uh, he, he stayed flat, you know, my, my engineer from the, the past, the Japanese engineer, stopped working and he told me, and then uh, he saw on the telemetry he stayed flat, that what Ayrton recognized the year after. But you cannot, you cannot get uh, any point back and uh, a championship at Ferrari is not like uh, other championships, you know. This rest, this event makes my whole career a little bit um, in a very strange uh, uh, test, you know. I almost stop, almost stop after, but um, I mean, I've this, I, I was really upset and disappointed and uh, I was thinking for one or two days if I should continue Formula One or not. How much support did you get from Ferrari in those moments? At Ferrari, you never get the full support that you can have, for example, at McLaren or in another team. But it's not because they don't want to support you, they don't know how to do it. The brand is more important than, than the driver, you know. They, they, they support you, but uh, you can feel that uh, there's something more important for them. <laughs> I've been very lucky when you are a racing driver, you want to drive for Ferrari, but I won also for Ferrari. I've been very close to be a, to be a champion in 1990. Uh, maybe one of my best seasons in terms of uh, driving skid, you know, against Ayrton. Maybe the best, you know. And uh, so I always keep that as a great experience. I have a regret not to be a champion at Ferrari because that would have changed completely the, the, the history. As with Mansell, after a near fairy tale first season with Ferrari, things soured in Prost's second season. With the prancing horse no match for Williams or McLaren, things came to a head before the season-closing Australian Grand Prix, when Prost's contract was abruptly terminated, allegedly for comparing his Ferrari 643 to a truck. Nobody has seen this interview. Nobody in the world. You are all talking about that, but you have never seen it. Did that interview actually ever happen? That, that, that did not happen the way they explained. It was, they, they had to find an excuse. The same weekend, we were talking about myself being a driver plus a sporting director. We were already preparing some contract. And then during the same week, I have been fired, taking the excuse of the truck. And when I've, I've been to court to the lawyers, they, we, we never, never find the, uh, the, you know, the, the record, you know. And then two weeks later, Luca Di Montezemolo came back and he wanted me to come back. Uh, he, he came to the, to the team. So that only at Ferrari that, that things can, can happen, you know. A small problem in uh, another team becomes a big problem in, in, at Ferrari. 
And so it was that Prost's time at Ferrari, like so many before him, ended in rancour and bad blood, despite all of the high points. When you're winning, the relation is uh, perfect. I was coming to Bologna with a private jet. They were, they were stopping the, the, the commercial jet, you know, for me to, to land and to, to go at Maranello as quick as possible. 91, when the situation was not very good, it very difficult to get a slot, a slot time, <laughs> you know? And then after, after a few years, you are part of the family. Today, when I go in Italy, I am a Ferrari driver, you know? I am part of the history of Ferrari. It is completely different. And you never had any problem with the Tifosi. Once a Ferrari driver, always a Ferrari driver? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You are part of a family for the whole, uh, for your whole life, yeah, for sure. And although you didn't win the championship, do you feel it, it completed your career, having those two years with the team? Yes, yes. I think, I think it was, I, I would never regret any, anything, you know, because it's part of... Uh, my, my dream in 91 was to, to be in charge of the team, because that was a possibility, and maybe stop, the, stop my career one year after and then having a, a new career at Ferrari. So that because uh, I really wanted to, to make this brand, uh, you know, uh, winning, but it would have been very difficult anyway. I, I can realize that. Alan was right. Making Ferrari a winning team again would be difficult. His final winless season in red was the start of another downturn. The prancing horse slipped back out of the running for race wins, let alone championships. Meanwhile, Williams dominated and gave Prost the fourth world title that Ferrari couldn't. But better times were on the horizon. The arrival of Jean Todd at Maranello in 1993 would transform the team's fortunes. Over several years, Todd totally rebuilt and reorganized the team, bringing in chief designer Rory Byrne and technical director Ross Braun to lead the development of the car. Ferrari returned to the top step of the podium with the returning Gerhard Berger and Jean Alesi. Then Michael Schumacher and Eddie Irvine, who drove Todd's team to their first Constructors' Championship in 16 years. Ferrari were challenged for both world titles in 2000, with Michael and his new teammate, Rubens Barrichello. As a child growing up in Brazil, Rubens had become obsessed with the red cars and the heroes who drove them. You look at Ferrari being the only red car in the grid. When you see the horse, you see something different and people talk different about it. So there is no way that you treat Ferrari as a normal car, as a normal team. I really fell in love when I saw Joe's Villeneuve driving. I was actually seeing with my, my, my eyes that wet Rio de Janeiro race where he was all over the place, no front wing. And he, he was just phenomenal with the way he treated the car and, the, and his talent and, and so on. I remember being devastated when, the, when that Zolder race happened. I couldn't eat. Those are times when you, when you know that you, you fell in love with the sport. That happened a couple of times. That happened with him and that happened with Elio De Angelis. I didn't know those guys and that, you know, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. I felt sorry for the family and so on. I remember all those drivers from the past because I, I can see races in 79. Uh, they didn't win in Brazil 78, 79 because the Lotus was dominating. But I, I remember seeing from, from my uh, grandma's house 
I remember seeing they going by and the noise of that V12 was something else. So, you know, the love starts uh, really young. My first test in Fiorano, I didn't know if it was going to happen because there was snow. The grass was white, but it was sunny. When I got that in Fiorano, that uh, my name was in the car, the car was ready for me to go. That is something else. And uh, on the same time that is such a day, you need to keep telling yourself that in your mind is just a red car. Because if, if you put all, all the Ferrari meaning for all the world in your you know, back, when you drive the car, you just don't have the mentality to just drive the car and, and, and do, do it as, a, as you need to do because it's too much pressure on the other side too. When I asked Rubens to sum up Ferrari in a few words, he said love and work. The relentless hours he put in on the test track to make the car as good as it could be was a huge part of the team's success. We could go to the track test, but it was amazing how much work. It was 24 by 24. It was three sessions of eight hours uh, into the wind tunnel. There was no stop. The thing at Ferrari was that I was trying to convince myself that with the work that I was, I was giving to Ferrari, they were going to give me back, you know, give back. So I kept on truly staying there and there. I mean, you know, there's this story that uh, I was testing in Mugello Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday after a race on Sunday. And I, I said, uh, I call home and I said, I'm, I'm going home tonight. So I'm, I'm tired and so on. So here come Rose at four o'clock on Thursday and said, Rubens, we need you one day more Friday here in Jello. And I said, Ross, you got to give me something very special for me to stay here tomorrow. And he says, okay, I'll take you for a, a Bistecca Fiorentina in, in Florence with the best wine that you're going to have. So in all honesty, I was pissed that I was staying one more day, but he really, you know, he's still nowadays, whenever he sees me, he, he gives me one bottle of the Maceto uh, Tuscany, which is the best wine I've ever experienced. So you see, I was, I was inside. They, they need me in, in a way that I need them. And uh, there was a, something special going, going on that I've always thought it was going to get better and better and better. Rubens gave Ferrari far more than just reliable testing data. He could produce spellbinding race-winning drives as well. At the German Grand Prix in 2000, Schumacher was taken out at the first corner and in a chaotic race, which was interrupted by a track invader, Rubens stormed through the field from 18th on the grid. And when it started to rain, he convinced the team that he could stay out on dry rubber. When Michael wasn't on the race anymore and they, they concentrate on me in Hockenheim, they can see that I can finish third by being ordinary. And uh, it wasn't that I was trying to be special. I was just trying to be myself because probably when my father told me that we had no money to buy the wet tires and I had, if I wanted to go, I, I could go slicks. Uh, he didn't know what kind of a monster he was creating. In a, in a good sense. So that day, I was so sure that I could go slicks because the track wasn't wet. 
uh, and Ross was so sure that I was crazy. And I had to, you know, for two laps, keep on telling him that I said, look, Ross, I, I, I really don't see the point of, of going to the pits. And then whenever he finally says this word to her, yeah, I think you're crazy, but if you're good enough, you're going to win the race. So whenever he says that, the, like an elephant came on, onto my back because I said, Jesus Christ, I convinced him. So now what I do, you know, if, if it rains more, I'm, I'm, it's going to be trouble. But then, you know, the race evolved in a way that I had just to clear my mind up because I flat spot the left tire, the left front tire. That kept my focus on braking. So everything was working. If I, if I wanted to be negative, I was going to be negative. But, it, you know, I kept on being positive and, and showing myself that that was a wake-up call. Okay, you didn't go straight. It's a wake-up call. Keep going. But the last lap was the slowest of my all in, in a Ferrari car, and I was able to win. So that day, I went from a boy to a man in a Ferrari camp, and, and that day got to be the, the most special one. Rubens Barrichello is into the stadium for the 45th and last time. He turns into the slow turn 12 left-hander. He can almost feel a wonderful victory as he comes down to the last two right-handers. A sensational drive being completed with Rubens Barrichello from Sao Paulo, Brazil, winning for Ferrari. It was a brilliant day. Gosh, I, re I remember it like it was yesterday. But what about Silverstone 2003 as well? That's the closest thing I got to perfection in a race car. There isn't another race of all 326 that I got closer to perfection in tire, uh, setup. That car was just phenomenal from the word go. And, and I remember Michael looked at me. He didn't have the same choice on tire that I had. And he looked at me and said, are you crazy? You know, the crazy words always comes to me. But I, I had to be different in a way to beat Michael. And I, I was so sure that tire was the right one for the race that uh, I went, I, I just said, yes, this, this is the one. And I, you know, when I went and qualify, I was already fast. People look at me and say, oh, yeah, the tire is fast for a lap. But uh, because Michael was fourth on the grid and then, you know, people overtook me on the start and I overtook them back from the outside, inside. It didn't matter. The car was just perfect. That is a special one as well, especially because I was coming from a, from a beginning of the year with some failures, with some mistakes. I didn't have a lot of points. So it was a good chance for me to come back up. And that was eventually the year that I thought I could have won the championship as well. Rubens had done a lot of the development work on the 2003 Ferrari, but it was Schumacher who ended up on top. In fact, Rubens had to watch his teammate win five titles for Ferrari, and on more than one occasion, he had to make sacrifices to help Michael's title challenges. And despite that, he still counts his years with Ferrari as his best in Formula One. It is the highlight. It was a, I was a... When I signed the contract, I wanted to make sure that the contract said there was no uh, nothing on it written that it, I, I was going to give it an advantage to Michael. I'm not really sure what was written on Michael's one, but on mine, it wasn't written. 
So that's why I kept on fighting all the way. But I would be insane to concentrate on some bad stuff because all the bad stuff teach me to be better. The relationship with me and Michael was the best one that produced something wonderful for the team. And I, I think that, uh, yes, more, they were the best times of my life because it was just the car that you put it on the track and you, you know it was fast. And luckily, we had the likes of uh, Williams and, uh, and the McLarens and, and, you know, other teams that came. They gave us hassle to keep on getting better. What about your relationship with the Tifosi? It was phenomenal because in a way, they knew I had an Italian passport because I spoke the language. I was emotional like the Italians are. Uh, they were pissed whenever I had to let Michael buy. So I had them on my side. Uh, in a way, it was great to see Michael winning, but they weren't desperate to see me winning too. Can you describe the Monza podium when you've got that sea of people underneath you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, just a, it's just a moment that I, I actually never, never asked how long does it take a podium, but it must be like seven, eight minutes or something. You want it to be as long as possible. It's just a moment that you, you wave at people, they wave it back. You put the, that little tricky samba that I have, and they do it at the same downstairs. So it's just a, it's just a connection that is, it just makes it unbelievable. Rubens likens being a Ferrari driver at Monza to being a rock star, hearing a huge crowd singing along with you. It makes anything worth it, he said. The adulation and emotions experienced by those who wear the prancing horse are so special that any sacrifices and hardships simply melt away. Scuderia Ferrari once again finds itself in a period of struggle. The titles won by the team and Kimi Raikkonen in the late 2000s feel a long time ago. 2020 marks the end of Sebastian Vettel's time at the team, a spell that, a bit like Prost's, promised so much and came so close, but ultimately failed to bring the biggest trophies back to Maranello. Sebastian is staying in the sport because he believes in Aston Martin, but also because he loves Formula One. And that love affair began with Michael Schumacher and Ferrari. Ferrari means to me childhood memories. I think looking up to Michael when I was young, the red car, my earliest memories of Ferrari is when Michael won. It was in the 96 car when he joined. I mean, Ferrari were around before him, but at that time it was only him for me. So I didn't realize when he was in the Benetton that there's Ferrari as well. Um, but uh, I think the 96 car that was really ugly um, and not very successful, but he still managed to do really, really well in that car. First time I was in Maranello, I was uh, probably eight or nine years old and I was uh, having a glimpse over the fence when Michael did his laps in February uh, because we went to Italy, it's warmer in these months than in Germany to, to do some practice in the go-kart and we passed Maranello, went to the museum and then all of a sudden the uh, engine roared, uh, the I think V10 at the time and uh, we had a glimpse over the fence and uh, saw him driving around so uh, not much of him but a little bit and that's my first first memory. Winning for Ferrari is definitely different if you're aware of the history, the significance of the team and so on. But then 
I'm uh, fortunate enough to have possibilities to compare and I think, uh, yeah, I would go back to winning is a privilege anytime. Sebastian Vettel, swerving, weaving, dancing to the chequered flag. He wins as a Ferrari driver for the first time in Formula One. Sebastian will hope to recapture that same special winning feeling after he says farewell to Ferrari. And what of the team's future? Charles Leclerc is the man chosen to lead the Scuderia forward, and it seems in his case, the lure of the red cars is as strong as ever. My earliest memory of Ferrari was in uh, Monaco. I had a, a good friend of mine that had an apartment on the racing track and I remember us playing, we were very young, I can't remember exactly, probably around five, four, five. We were playing with the small cars on the balcony, watching the race. And uh, I was cheering for the red car at the time. Uh, if I have to be completely honest, I couldn't know, I didn't know yet what, what, that the name was Ferrari, but I was definitely cheering for the red car. And, and then I got a passion for this, uh, for, this, uh, for this car and the team. A few years later, Charles found himself at the gates of the hallowed Maranello factory for the very first time. It was very special. Uh, it was uh, quite a lot of uh, years ago. I uh, went there with uh, Jules Bianchi. Uh, he had to do some simulator there and uh, I didn't have the access to go inside the factory so I can uh, remember going around to see everything from, from outside, looking Grand at the track from outside, going to the museum and yeah, and Jules told me that day, uh, work hard and, and one day you'll have the access to it. Uh, now it's a bit easier for me to get uh, inside the, the Ferrari factory but, uh, but yeah, I remember very well this day. Can you still remember the moment when you were told you had the Ferrari seat for 2019? I think I will never ever uh, forget the moment uh, where I've learned that news. Uh, I was with quite a lot of friends on a boat of, of my friend and I've had the, the call of Maurizio. I mean, it was uh, written Maurizio. And I was like, oh, stop the engine, stop everything. Now it's, uh, it's quite important. So they stopped everything, everyone was silent. And uh, Maurizio, first told me okay we've made our choice and and you're not taken for next year and i was like oh I, I was very disappointed i did not expect to be taken but obviously you still have that hope there was like five seconds where i was not saying anything and then he was like no joking you're actually taken for for the seat next year and uh, so i was trying to stay calm on the phone and then i and i and i completely jumped, jumped in the water and then it was just uh, craziness after that how proud are you that you are mentioned in the same breath as Andretti, Schechter, Mansell, Prost, all these legends of the sport. It feels unreal to be, uh, yeah, uh, to be mentioned with these same names. And I don't feel at the level, to be honest, of these names, uh, but uh, I focus on myself. I try to work on myself to be the best uh, driver I, uh, I can. And, uh, and that's my only focus, but it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm extremely proud to be driving for a team like Ferrari. But once these names are mentioned, I, I just don't feel 
as, as good as them, but, uh, but I'm working on it and hopefully I can have a success. Charles clearly has the same deep passion for Ferrari that all of the drivers we've heard from feel. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from all of these superstars about Ferrari and a huge thanks to everyone who's contributed. And if you want to see a short film about what it's like to race for Ferrari, head over to F1 TV now. Well, that's almost it for this week. But before we go, let's delve into the virtual mailbag to hear your thoughts on part one of our Ferrari special from last week. And I'm delighted to say that I think you enjoyed it. Akshay Vashnav said this. What amazing stories from the 60s to the 80s of the Ferrari team. The tales of the great old man Ferrari gave me goosebumps, literally. Looking forward to the second part. Great stuff, Akshay. Thank you. And I'm often asked who, dead or alive, I'd most like to have on Beyond the Grid. Well, Enzo Ferrari is definitely one of those people. And Koenig Schumacher added, imagine Vettel and Leclerc face to face with Enzo Ferrari now. Gosh, can you imagine that scenario, Koenig? What a wonderful image. I see the current pairing a bit like Schechter and Villeneuve back in 1979. I think Enzo would have respected Sebastian, but loved Charles. And Nicholas Legion sent this in. If only Nicky Lauda were here and he could talk about his time at Ferrari. Too true, Nicholas. Nicky would have given fabulous insight and what I'd have given to interview him about Ferrari and so many other topics as well. Well, that's it for this week, folks. Thank you as ever for getting in touch and please continue to do so. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter and you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next week, stay safe and keep it flat out.